HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. Welcome to Meet and 3, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. I'm your host and HRN's communication director, Kat Johnson. This week's episode is inspired by the recently released documentary, Eating Animals. We watched the film last week, and its timely message stuck with us. It delves into the history of traditional farming practices and the post-World War II shift to the widespread factory farming system. Today, we bring you interviews with the film's director and one of its breakout stars. His name is Frank Reese, and he's fighting to keep the old methods of farming alive. We'll also explore how we'll be eating animals in the future. In our world of increasing automation, did you know you can now get your meat from a vending machine? There's also been a lot of talk lately about the viability of insects as an accessible protein source. Is this a passing trend or here to stay? We find out. We begin our journey into the edible animal kingdom with Christopher Quinn, the documentary filmmaker who says his latest project has radicalized the way he eats. I opt out of eating any commodity meat whatsoever. His new film is called Eating Animals. It's based on the book of the same name by Jonathan Safran Foer and is produced and narrated by Natalie Portman. Its main focus is the agricultural industrial complex that dominates our food system. 40 short years ago, we really kind of traded in kind of scratch cooking for cheaper, more efficient ways of getting food. And and it also came out of a time when uh, a lot of women were starting to enter into the workforce and they were, you know, and so this can, the convenience of like we can cook or emulate a home cooked meal like in Kentucky Fried Chicken did was interesting for people and we consumed it and embraced it and then it, you know, started to run away from us and now it's just gotten to a place one step at a time and we're in real trouble. Quinn tackles the issue from several points of view. He speaks to whistleblowers who aim to expose animal cruelty and major health issues in confinement farming and research. Jim Keane, who's in the film, wrote a letter to Michael Moss of the New York Times, and Michael Moss started to investigate it and uncover this, this lab. He investigates the human and economic implications of the poultry tournament farming system. They'd like the farmers to be in debt because it's a vicious cycle. 
And he looks into the rise of plant-based meat substitutes. There's people who fully embrace plant-based technologies as the that's going to solve all the problems. And I don't really believe that. I mean, I think it's part of the solution. But what Quinn spends the majority of the film exploring is the so-called 1% of farmers who are doing things, as he puts it, the right way. Because I don't think in my lifetime I'm going to see anybody, uh, you know, world without meat. We're going to consume it. So let's look at, uh, let's go back and look at the way that we used to raise animals. The star of the film is a farmer who raises heritage breed turkeys and chickens in Kansas. His name is Frank Reese, and he owns Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch. His birds have been on with him for, I guess, generationally for about 100 years, a little over 100 years. And he doesn't have to go back and order from the companies at the hatcheries. His, his animals can reproduce. They can regenerate themselves. And nobody knows how to do that anymore. You can listen to my full interview with Christopher Quinn at heritageradionetwork.org slash eatinganimals. You can also go to eatinganimalsmovie.com to learn more and find a theater screening the film near you. Frank Reese and his Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch have been friends of Heritage Radio Network for many years. We welcomed him to our studio recently to talk about his heritage breeds and some exciting new developments on his farm. Heritage was first applied to turkeys, and uh, that happened back in about 2001, 2002, when that, so it's a fairly new word. So for a turkey to be called heritage, it must be a standard bred breed of turkey that is or has been accepted by the American Poultry Association as purebred and to meet all of their standards prior to 1952. So what's the main difference between these standard uh, bred turkeys and or chickens and the ones that most Americans are getting on their dinner table? That's a huge, huge question. And there's not a simple answer because it's multiple, multiple things. It's like, what's the difference between a Chihuahua and a Great Dane? They're both dogs, but they're radically different, and they were designed for radically different purposes. The, the biggest thing, to say it simply, is, is all those things that were the definition of a heritage turkey or heritage chicken is the total opposite for the, the industrial genetics we have today. They grow 300 times faster than my turkeys. They have been genetically engineered through multiple selective breeding and mutations to, to perform this act. Uh, the, the, none of the industrial turkeys are capable of reproducing. So it's basically just the opposite. So what does a turkey's uh, day-to-day life look like at Good Shepherd Ranch? Well, probably one of the things I always like pointing out to people if they come visit the farm they're going to see something at my farm you will never see at any other type of industrial farm. That's old birds. The other thing that you would, you're going to see on my farm that you won't see other places is male and female turkeys together. All the industrial turkeys being produced out there, um, never, the toms and hens never see each other in their entire life. Um, the toms are kept in one building and the semen's collected there and they take it over into another building and they put it in the hens. 
And so in my farm, you may see turkeys having sex, you know, and there's been a number of visitors, you know, walk through the building and they look down and go, oh my gosh. I said, now there's natural behavior. The other thing you're going to see, you won't see it, is a hen sitting on eggs and hatching them. And the hen still having the genetic ability and the understanding within her to do that and to mother, to be able to raise. As Christopher Quinn mentioned, Frank Reese is himself a rare breed. There aren't many farmers like him left. My real purpose is I want to teach the next generation of teachers. I want them to go home and then teach the next generation. And there really needs to be a central place for this because it's not taught anywhere in any university. You know, all this type of education is gone. Learn more about Frank Reese's work by heading to goodshepherdpoultryinstitute.com. If you want to support Frank and his farming methods, you can find Good Shepherd Poultry at heritagefoodsusa.com. And now we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll explore what the future has in store for all of you carnivores out there. Think about what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound. What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy saltwater? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass, long chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. Welcome back to Meet and Three. Have you ever purchased your steak from a machine instead of a store? Hannah Forden has, and she spoke with a man who is revolutionizing the way people can shop for meat. So what happens here is that the animals come in on the truck. This is what it sounds like behind the scenes of a state-of-the-art whole animal butchering facility. It's cold and brightly lit, and it's so clean you could eat off the floor. One room is lined with bins of vacuum-sealed cuts of meat. In another, dry-aged steaks are getting their funk on. Real sexy freezer. My name is Joshua Applestone. I'm the uh, president and CEO of the Applestone Meat Company, based in Stone Ridge, New York, the Hudson Valley. Josh is best known as the co-founder and former owner of Fleischer's Craft Butchery, At Fleischer's, Josh and his wife Jessica made old-school butchering cool again. The couple built a small empire of stores selling locally sourced, ethically raised meat to the greater New York City area. A mentor of mine very long ago had always said, you you do what you do best, and that's what you do. So what I do is, you know, we cut meat, we process meat, we source healthy animals. Customers wanted more from Josh post-Fleischer's. So four years ago, he decided to shift from the luxury business of craft butcher shops into something different. Self-serve kiosks, or meat vending machines. 
Being in a customer service-based industry, you don't want to rock the boat. You really want people to shop your store. And, you know, it's really, I, I get it. Like, I really get it. But there's a thing about 24-7. Driven by a desire to lower prices and reach more people, Josh took a risk and dove in. But don't worry, this doesn't mean the robots are taking over. There is always someone on site during business hours to answer questions and restock. I'm old enough to remember when ATMs came out and my, you know, my dad, who... His first line, I remember as a kid telling us, he's like, why would anyone want to go to a computer to use, you know, to get your money? You can go to Food Town and cash a check. And I was like, right, right, of course. But now it was the same type of resistance, you know, four years ago when we started this, where people were like, really? Why would I want to buy that out of machine? Shoppers have come around to buying their meat from a big blue box. I tried myself and it's pretty easy. The day selections are lined up behind a big window. You pick, make a payment, and slide the door open to grab your tasty morsel. Plus, prices at these vending machines are about 35% less than the same products sold in a fancy butcher shop. But the kiosks benefit more than just shoppers. Using these machines enables us to pay butchers more and people processing more. And it, it always trickles down for us to eliminate more counter jobs, but then we create better pain and more more positions at higher rate, you know, behind the scenes. I think, you know, I think it balances. New locations are coming to Scarsdale and Hudson, New York later this year. Because really, you know, it's, we could be anywhere. This model provides a unique solution to issues of access. Imagine a future where urban and rural residents living in food deserts can easily find places to buy healthy, affordable food. Newer kiosks will even accept food stamps. You know, I look at Atlanta um, outside of the perimeter and stuff where people work their butts off to move outside of the perimeter and spend more time commuting back and forth. And there go, they're eating worse. So I'd love to see these machines at uh, rest stops. It's unlimited to what type of product we can put in there. And as long as we stick to our theme, it's, it's we're great. Thanks to Hannah Forden for that fascinating look into automated provisions. We now turn to Ariha Settlevod, Meet and Three's newest member, for an in-depth look into eating bugs. And we're not referring to the nickname for lobsters. This is a look into the insect kingdom. Once just a fear factor staple, insects are now top chef pantry ingredients, farmer's market tasting samples, and gastronomic experiences at high-end restaurants. Insects, especially crickets, have begun appearing on a number of food trends lists lately. But this fad isn't really a fad at all. It's a custom that goes back centuries. They were a part of the diet for Native Americans in this area. And then mm-hmm. when when Western Europeans uh, expanded over to, to the Americas, they, they didn't have insects as a part of their diet. And they had much more of a, a monoculture-style agriculture that, you know, you, you grew one thing and everything else was a pest. And um, that just pervaded. That's Pat Crowley talking to Katie Kiefer, host of What Doesn't Kill You here on HRN. Crowley is the founder of Chapel Bars, a company that makes protein bars from milled cricket flour. We like to say that, uh, you know, food fads come and go, but if you look at the length of human history, we've been eating insects a lot longer than, than we haven't been in, in the United States and Western Europe. So the, really the fad is, is not eating insects, and we're just trying to bring that fad out the door here. If you look at it health-wise, if you look at it environmentally, it just makes sense. It's a no-brainer that we should have insects in our diet, and really the only reason we don't 
is the, the psychological one. Our, our culture didn't grow up with it, and so we think it's, it's kind of gross. Insects are great nutritionally. According to Crowley, milled cricket flour is over 60% protein, as well as being low in sugar and cholesterol. But there could also be an environmental advantage. They'll eat almost anything. That's kind of one of the exciting things about the industry is that you can use alternative sources of feed for them, so you can use more agricultural byproduct in their feed. Andrew Brentano happens to agree. The co-founder and CEO of Tiny Farms, a platform which aims to help people begin bug farming at home, believes in the power of edible insects to be an efficient and sustainable food source. The really big kicker is how much protein they have. I mean, insects are very high in protein and certain species very high in healthy fats. By weight, they compare to lean beef, chicken, you know, similar values there. So, you know, that's kind of the no-brainer. But they also are very high in vitamins and minerals. So uh, crickets, for instance, are very high in iron, which is uh, something that many people are deficient in. It's hard to get in a sort of bioavailable form right. in diets, particularly in plant-based diets. The insects have about a two-to-one uh, feed conversion ratio, which is great. That means for two pounds of feed in, you get a pound of edible insect out mm-hmm. at the end. This is very, very good ratio. It's about the same as fish. Um, so in mm-hmm. aquaculture, a vegetarian fish is about the same although the infrastructure for growing fish is a lot more uh, intensive since they're living water. It's a lot trickier to contain and stuff. Um, With chicken, it's three to four to one. Um, Pork is five to seven to one, depending on what they're eating. Mm -hmm. And cows, it's up around nine or ten to one. So they're really the least efficient. And actually, um, it's worse than that because with all the vertebrate animals, you have a large amount of skeleton and tendon and stuff that you can't actually eat mm-hmm. um, that you're, that's part of that feed conversion. So it really is a even worse ratio. But that awesome insect conversion ratio? Well, it might not be entirely true. In a 2015 study published in Plus One, researchers raised crickets on one of five different diets, corn, soy, and grain-based feed versus food waste or crop residue. The researchers measured how big the crickets grew and how much edible protein they produced, and found that diet made a huge difference. Crickets raised on processed food waste had feed and protein conversion rates no more efficient than that of chickens. In fact, the most successful crickets were those that ate a grain-based diet, similar to what most poultry eat, ending up with a 35% protein conversion rate, which is only slightly better than chickens. But for those looking to take a little more control over their food production, or even just explore a new hobby, insect farming might be the way to go. A lot of interest from people that are just really want to sort of take control of their own food production. There's a uh-huh. lot of kind of backyard farming interest around. There's a lot of people that have backyard chickens that they spend a lot of money feeding mealworms to anyway. Ah, and they can save a lot of money growing their own, they want, or they want to eat them directly themselves to get kind of the full environmental benefits of right farming insects. Um, So there's this huge amount of small-scale interest. At a really basic level, you essentially need, for most species, a plastic box um, Uh and then some sort of substrate in there for them to crawl around in or on. So if it's mealworms, you put some wheat bran or oats or something like that in the bottom and they live in there and eat that. If it's crickets, you usually put something like um, egg cartons in there that they like to crawl around on. Then you have some trays with food or water. At At a very basic level, that's all that's required. According to Brentano, insects can also provide a substantial amount of calcium and fiber, if 
you know, you don't mind eating some exoskeletons. Making them a complete nutritional package. So there you have it. Insects, the new multivitamin. Now if only they came in Flintstones shapes. Thanks to Ariha for that look into insects as food. That's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening. Write us anytime at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out. Be sure to save some room on your plate for Meetin 3 every Friday afternoon. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you love what you're hearing, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And please, if you love this show, recommend us to your friends. Special thanks this week to Katie Kiefer, host of What Doesn't Kill You on HRN. Meetin 3 is produced by Liza Hamm, Margaret Kelly, Hannah Forden, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is David Tadishore. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Meetin 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Tune in next week for a new episode of Meetin 3. We'll be celebrating the 4th of July a little bit early. 